listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, March 1st, 2020. Today's teaching is on the currency of the New Testament church. Visit strategieswork.com to subscribe to the email version of Gleanings for additional teachings and more information. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Currency of the New Testament Church. Well, good morning. This morning we'll be talking out of Acts 3, and our title is The Currency of the Ecclesia. The first local ecclesia is composed of Jewish people who were sovereignly chosen by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and forgiven, that is, justified before God. However, the first local ecclesia understood little of the normative practices of the new covenant. The norms would be revealed over time through the apostolic writings. So in the book between the old covenant and the new, therefore one expects a paradigm shift associated with living in divine potency instead of human potency. In other words, in the Old Testament, they did not have the indwelling power of the spirit. In the new covenant, in the New, New Testament Ecclesia, we have now the Holy Spirit empowering those who know Christ and giving them the capacity to live at a whole new level. So this new paradigm will require new norms, and these new norms are going to be rooted in key concepts of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. So here's some examples of this. In the Old Testament scripture, revelation about Christ was concealed, but in the New Testament, it was revealed. Furthermore, the New New Covenant is built on the Abrahamic Covenant. The New Testament norm was therefore a hermeneutic, has a hermeneutic using the New Testament to better understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament religious law was a foreshadow of the New New Testament, particularly concerning the temple and the priesthood. The Old Testament temple was a literal place where God met man through priests, but the New Testament temple will be the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the church, who will be a kingdom of priests. Furthermore, the old covenant excluded the Gentiles, but the new covenant includes them. This will become and became the New Testament norm. The old covenant was conditioned on man obeying God, which he could not. Therefore, the old covenant revealed human impotency relative to meeting God's standard. This is called total depravity. And it was bad news because mankind could not self-save. This means that mankind needs a savior. The New Testament reveals now this savior who is a fulfillment of the unconditional Abrahamic promise, and that is Jesus. This is good news because mankind now has a savior through Jesus who administers salvation through grace. Since mankind could never earn right standing before God, the only way salvation could be administered is through the grace of God that grants mankind the gift, the free gift, of eternal life. This is good news, and it is normative. The so-called Great Commission recorded in Acts 28, 18 through 20, and some see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was given to the original apostles. The early ecclesia did not view this mandate as normative for the ecclesia. However, we do today. So that's the question. Who's right? Are they right or are we right? But instead, the early ecclesia viewed this mandate given to the original apostles as normative for discipleship. 
That's what they saw as normative. They didn't see the commission as a whole as normative. Now, fourth point here is Jesus' destiny was to be the sacrifice for the sins of men, and his legacy was to build his ecclesia. The establishment and oversight of local expressions of the ecclesia were ex ex executed by the original apostles and their spiritual, spiritual heirs. This is the normative practice of the New Testament ecclesia. We continue today to build communities of disciples. That is our call as disciples. The book of Acts includes both normative and non-normative practices. For example, the communal living of the first ecclesia described in Acts chapters two through five does not appear to be normative. We don't see this practice reproduced anywhere else. On the other hand, the use of the C4 principle to qualify people for divinely ordained workplace assignments in Acts six appears to be normative. In fact, we have many examples of scripture of the C4 principle being used to qualify people for specific work assignments. In this teaching today, the focus will be on Acts 3. Chapters 3 through 5 record the first persecution of the New Testament ecclesia, sparked by the healing of a man who was a congenitally lame person from birth. The starting, startling healing drew, event, drew attention that caused a Jewish response, a jealous response by the Jewish religious leaders who had some political authority. This event sparked the first recorded persecution of the New Testament ecclesia and provided insight into how the ecclesia of Jesus was indeed a work of God. So let's read the first 10 verses here and make a few comments. Now, John and Peter were going to the temple for the, for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. That is, Peter reached out to him and lifted him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. The birth of the New Testament ecclesia was a time of transition from the old covenant to the new. Though the new was different, there was continuity with the old. For example, in the early stages of the New Testament ecclesia, many of the practices of the old were still followed. For example, here, Peter and John participated in afternoon prayer. This was also the time of the afternoon sacrifice at the temple. And on one occasion, while walking to the prayer meeting, they encountered a lame man at the temple gate, beautiful. Of this gate, John Stott said this. Commentators most, uh, mostly identify this as the Nicanor Gate, which was the main eastern entrance to the temple precincts from the court of the Gentiles. Because Luke names it the beautiful gate, it is probably the one made of Corinthian brass, which Josephus said greatly excelled those that were only covered over with silver and gold. It was about 70 feet high, 75 feet high, and had huge double doors. 
But at the foot of this magnificent gate, the crippled man sat begging. The beggar was looking down when he asked Peter and John for money. They said that they did not have silver or gold, which may have been a hyperbole. Perhaps they had some, but wanted to bless him with something better. So Peter commanded him to look at them, which he did, expecting to receive money. Instead, Peter and John illustrated the supremacy of true wealth over temporal wealth, transcendent wealth over temporal wealth. Temporal wealth is simply money. Peter commanded the beggar to get up and walk in the name of Jesus. That was a command. That was not a suggestion. That was a command. The command to walk was accompanied by an act of faith by Peter. He extended a helping hand to assist the beggar by step, standing up for the first time in his life. Peter followed the example of Jesus, who also combined his command with a helping hand when he raised Jairus' daughter. Scripture recorded that Jesus took her hand, took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. In these two scenarios, a supernatural act was facilitated by a natural act, and the person of faith was the agent, not the recipient of the miracle. In the case of the beggar, his healing was instant. His feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up, started walking, leaping, and praising God. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 35, 6, which says, Then the lame will leap like a deer. Those present in the temple that day knew the man as the lame beggar, and then they saw him walking, leaping, and praising God. What could this be? It was a divine sign. It was a divine wonder intended to confirm the reality that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. Signs and wonders validated the birth of the New Testament ecclesia. Acts 2.19 records, I have displayed wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. That's God speaking there. And signs and wonders attested to the historicity of Jesus. Acts 2.22 says, fellow Israelites, this is Peter speaking, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Signs and wonders continued after the birth of the New Testament ecclesia to validate the legacy of Jesus and building his ecclesia through his followers. So Acts 2.43 reads, everyone has, was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And then in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, which is a couple of chapters downstream from where we are today, it says many signs and wonders are, were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Signs and wonders surrounded everything they did. Accordingly, a sign was used in this situation. Even the religious leaders recognized the healing of the beggar as a sign. See, see chapter 4, verse 22. Those who witnessed this event were filled with awe and astonishment. So awe is the word thambos, which implies being stunned or shocked. The Greek word was used in Luke 4.36 in reference to people's reaction to an exorcism performed by Jesus. The text reads, amazement, that is thambos, came over them all. And they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And the word thambos was also used in Luke 5.9 to describe the fisherman's reaction to the massive unexpected catch of fish. The text reads, for he and all those who were with him, 
that is Peter and John and James, were amazed at the catch of fish that had been taken. Then the second word is the word astonishment. And this word means a displacement of the mind, which implies a state of ecstasy or a trance. The word was used to describe Peter when he was hungry in Acts 10.10 and had a perplexing vision from the Lord. The text reads, he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. Again, it talks about ecstasy, kind of being an out-of-body experience in a sense. The healing of the lame beggar brought about much attention and called for an explanation. They were amazed and they were astonished. They didn't know what to think. So Peter steps up and provides the explanation in verses 11 through 26. So reading on, so we'll read this text now. Verse 11, while he was holding on to Peter and John, that is the beggar, the healed beggar, all the people utterly astonished ran toward them in what's called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, keep in mind at this point in the development of the Ecclesia, it is only Israelites. Why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power of godliness? It was not human potency that did this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, who has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, through him, he decided, though, through him, he was decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witness of this by faith in his name. His name has made this man strong whom you now see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus was given him has given him this perfect faith in front of all of you. Now, please note that the faith he's talking about is not the faith of the beggar. It was the faith of Peter and John. So the agents of faith can affect great blessing to others. Now, that's a startling thing today because we tend to think that it is our personal faith that's responsible for our personal blessings. No, other people, spiritual fathers and mothers over you can believe God for his will in your life, and they bless you accordingly. So this is the pattern here. The faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So that faith that comes through Jesus was given, has given him perfect health in front of all of you, and that faith was the faith of Peter and John. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that this Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. This is the gospel. This is the message. And this is exactly what Peter said in Acts 2 and now in Acts 3. This is how you respond to the truth of Jesus. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. That signs of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. You see, Jesus has already come, so he's obviously talking about the second advent. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, when God spoke about through the holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord our, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. 
you must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to, the, to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and to all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. That offspring obviously is Jesus. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you, sent him first to you <clears throat> to bless you by turning you from your evil ways. A really rich explanation now of what's happened here in the in the temple courts with this blind, this this lame beggar being healed. Located on the east side of the temple <clears throat> was Solomon's colonnade, a covered area where Jesus had taught. And this now was the venue for Peter's, Peter's message about Jesus. After the prayer and sacrifice, the healed beggar was there in the colonnade holding on to Peter and John. The sight of this healed, well-known beggar was a wonder that caused all the people to run toward him. None of them had ever seen him stand up. He had always been a lame person from birth. This is stunning. Peter addressed the crowd as a fellow Israelite. Using a this as that formula, he did, as he did in chapter two, he said, this is not what you think. The power to heal this man is not of man, but of divine origin. The power is from the historic Jesus, the righteous holy one, the source of life whom you killed. In fact, you have chosen, chose not to glorify Jesus, but to kill him and instead glorified a murderer, Barabbas. Nevertheless, God glorified Jesus by raising him from the dead. And we, that is Peter, James, and all the other apostles, are witnesses of the resurrection. The power to heal this man came from the resurrected, glorified Jesus and was executed by his servant, working through divinely empowered faith. You see, faith does not come from us. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. You know, we are saved by grace through faith. And the faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Faith is evidence of the divine empowerment of the spirit. And when you've been empowered the spirit, you express faith. And now you can express faith in such capacity that you can bless others as Peter and John did here. The lame beggar was blessed by the faith of Peter and John, which illustrates how the members of the New Testament ecclesia are empowered with faith by the Holy Spirit and are sovereignly used of God to bless those who have no faith. In verses 13 through 17, Peter clearly placed responsibility for the death of Jesus on the Jewish people. But in verse 18, Peter noted that God used it to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. This means that Jesus died according to the plan and purpose of God. Nevertheless, those who are responsible for his death are guilty. This is one of the great conundrums of scripture. How can God hold mankind responsible for sin when mankind's sin was used to do God's will? The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are seemingly incompatible. Nevertheless, scripture holds them up both to be true. We saw this in chapter two. We see it again here in chapter three. The call to repent, to change your thinking about Jesus and turn, that is return to the true worship of God is given in verse 19. The benefit is forgiveness of sins, that is justification, and seasons of refreshing, that is sanctification. It's, it's refreshing to be transformed 
to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is very refreshing. And interestingly, he doesn't mention the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here as he did in, in the prior chapter, though clearly it would be the case. Verse 20 <clears throat> states, seasons of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. The idea of sending Jesus here appears to be a reference to the second advent, the restoration of all things. It's perhaps the strongest restoration is the un strongest aspect of restoration is the uncontested rule of God over his universe, which was first prophetically stated in the Protevangelum of Genesis 3.15. Peter referenced Moses' prophetic reference to Jesus as a prophet like me. You see, Jesus was a prophet. He was a priest and he was a king. Then using Deuteronomy 18.19, Peter noted that the failure to listen and obey the prophet Jesus will lead to being cut off from the covenant people. This is a reference to eternal death. In verse 24, Peter reminded his audience that all the Old Testament prophets had spoken of these days, referring to the advent of Jesus, the day of Pentecost, and now the building of the New Testament ecclesia. Peter concluded his explanation with a reminder of the Abrahamic promise to bless all families of the earth. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. The blessing is the grace to turn from evil ways and was expressed and is expressed in the three tenses of salvation. And we see these tenses here in this text. We see regeneration is referenced to here as the forgiveness of sins. One of the ways that, that we know that we have been regenerated is faith. So faith is an expression that says it's something man does and requires divine potency to do it, which means the only people that can do it have been regenerated and therefore they are forgiven of their sins and justified before God. And then the second tense is sanctification. Seasons of refreshing come from the Lord through the progressive grace to live free from sin. And glorification is the process of the removal of the very presence of sin from us or remove us from sin. That begins when we pass. When we pass from this existence, we are now removed from the presence of sin and is fully consummated at the second advent with the return of Christ and sin and death are dealt with finally and fully. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20. Finally, just a few comments on Christology. The study of the personal work of Christ is the study of Christology. This passage contains a number of Christological insights. Building on the certainty that Jesus is both Lord and Christ from chapter two, verse 36, this text adds some things. It adds that the Christ is a servant of God, that he's the holy and righteous one. The Christ is the source of life. The Christ is the Messiah. In fact, the word Messiah is synonymous with the word Christ. The Christ is a prophet and an offspring of Abraham in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. This passage adds, rich, adds to the rich source of revelation about Christology that we find in all the New Testament canon. Now, just a word on theology here. I want to just make a point about the currency of the ecclesia. And I'm going to suggest the currency of the ecclesia is transcendent or true wealth. Now, what is true wealth? Could one recognize true wealth if one saw it? The pedestrian view of true wealth today is limited to temporal wealth. That is tangible assets, money, real estate, fine art you know, commodities, those kinds of things are considered to be tangible assets though as wealth. And tangible assets are presumed to be the metric of success, security, and significance. 
An example of this can be found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, which reads in part uh, out of the CSB. And this is Jesus talking to Laodicean Christians. You say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. In this text, Jesus responded to the first century Laodicean Christians view of temporal wealth as a metric of security. They believed because they had money, they were secure. In the rest of his verse, he explained why they're wrong. He said, you don't realize, which means you're deceived, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is very direct with these wealthy Christians. He didn't mince words. He said, you are deceived. He intimates that temporal wealth is not true or transcendent wealth. Now, that's really hard for us. We think temporal wealth is true wealth. He says it's not. In fact, in the next verse here in Revelation 3.18, he explained their real need. You don't realize this is what you really need. You think your needs are met. Your needs are not met. This is what you really need. He said, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus viewed the real need here is transcendent wealth, wealth that has value both in this existence and beyond. He uses the imagery of gold refined in fire to refer to this true wealth. And then white clothes symbolize the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us when we come to know Christ. When we're regenerated, we are imputed as being righteous and having right standing with God. We are adopted into the family of God. And the eye ointment is metaphysical awareness. Metaphysical awareness is the ability to see reality from God's perspective, to see truth. The Laodicean Christians demonstrated they had no metaphysical awareness relative to money. They did not understand how to view money. And Jesus explains to them, you think money meets your needs. It does not meet your real needs. It meets your perceived needs. Your real needs are spiritual in nature. And you've got to buy real wealth, true wealth. In the story of the beggar in Acts 3, Peter and John did not have temporal wealth. Well, if they had it, they knew that wasn't the key for what they wanted to do. They said they didn't have it, but maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe they really had something. But they they were there to do something greater than anything that temporal wealth could buy. They had transcendent true wealth, and they could do something greater, and they had the faith to do it. So true wealth was not only physical healing here but also the good news of Jesus. You see, the beggar got far more than he ever asked for or expected. He had no faith for this. The faith for this was on the part of the apostles. Big clue here about how we bless others. We have to learn to bless others with our faith and not put on them a demand that they have faith. As we believe, as we do things that align with the kingdom of God to serve the purpose of God in them, and they respond to that, they will then be hugely blessed and they will come to faith as well. Some examples of how true wealth are so much better than anything that we can have in this existence. There are three I want to mention real quickly. Number one is instruction. Number two is wisdom. And number three is righteousness. Psalm 119.72 says this, instruction from your lips, that is from the lips of God, is better than for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Instruction is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Or in Proverbs 16, 16, 
the, the Solomon says, get wisdom. How much better is it is than gold? And get understanding. It is preferable than silver. Wisdom is far more better, precious than gold or silver. And then Proverbs 11.4, Solomon writes, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, referring to worldly riches, to temporal wealth. But righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness is true wealth. It is transcendent wealth. Given the superiority of transcendent wealth, that is true wealth over temporal wealth, wisdom is take temporal wealth and trade up. Use temporal wealth to gain transcendent wealth. Store up for yourself things in heaven, not on things on earth. That's what Jesus talks about, you know, in in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. Use tangible wealth to gain true wealth. That's this is the proper way to use money. This is what the currency of the kingdom is all about, is trading up to the real wealth that God has for us. Now, word of application. One of my grandsons asked his mother one day if he could call me. I miss granddad during the middle of a work day. My daughter assumed that I was busy and therefore unavailable. She communicated accordingly to my grandson. He responded by saying that it didn't matter whether I was busy or not, for he knew that I, granddad, would want to talk with him because he was my grandson. And he knew that I always wanted to talk to my grandson. Well, what a cute story that was. And I took I, I, I was very amused when I heard it. And I said that was so true. I will interrupt just about anything to talk to my grandson. This cute interaction illustrates a powerful spiritual truth. For those who know Jesus, they're adopted into the family of God. Therefore, they enjoy the security of his love and acceptance. Like my grandson is secure in my love and acceptance. So also we need to learn that we are secure in the Heavenly Father's love and acceptance. And we need to learn to live in that security. And we need to recognize that what it would look like to live in that security. My, my grandson spoke with great confidence. If we live in the security of God, we have great confidence. So what would it be look like to conduct business with a profound sense of the love and security of the Heavenly Father? In other words, what would it be like to conduct business in truth and faith? The first change that one might experience would perhaps be one's view of money. Money would no longer be the driving purpose of business. Instead, one would work out out of a profound sense of gratitude, purpose, and security, seeking to obey the will of God. In addition, a transformed view of money, to a transformed view of money, conducting business in faith would transform one's use of money. The story of the, of the healing of the lame beggar in Acts 3 illustrates that there is currency beyond, that's more powerful than, than money. It's more effective than money. It's more valuable than money. Money is simply a temporal tool that has no value beyond this existence. However, transcendent wealth, that is the wealth of, of the church, the wealth of the kingdom of God, has value beyond this existence. This is true wealth. In Acts 3, the lame beggar sought temporal wealth from Peter and John which they did not have, or at least they said they didn't have it. Perhaps that's hyperbole, and they really did. But they want to give him something better. They want to give him something that will be lasting, something that temporal wealth could not buy. And that is complete healing from his congenital condition. His response was passionate joy and gratitude to the Lord for the gift that temporal money could never buy. Peter and John conducted business using the currency of the kingdom of God. This does not mean that God doesn't use the temporal. He does. 
but it means that temporal wealth is simply a tool that should be used as an expression of faith to help one align with the will of God. Scripture provides guidance on how to use temporal wealth to align with the will of God. For example, one should honor the Lord with the first fruits of one's labor. This means that one ought to always think first about the use of temporal resources, about what God wants to do with those temporal resources. What is his will? Not what we want to do, but what he wants done. In other words, one should sacrifice personal pleasures and desires and agendas to fund God's will. That is a very different view of how to use money. But that is a biblical view. Another example is charity. Charity alone is a Christian virtue. There's no other worldview that promotes charity like Christianity. All the charity in the world today is rooted in a Christian worldview, regardless of where it's exercised or practiced. It ultimately comes from Christianity. It was not a virtue. Charity was not a virtue of the first century Roman culture that largely shaped Western Christianity. But Christianity changed Western culture. Now, given humility, when we give in humility, which is the unique virtue of Christianity, then we give properly. Such giving should be performed seeking to bring the recipients of the gift into alignment with the will of God. In other words, charity is not about funding their will. Charity is about funding God's will in them. So we have to learn how to conduct charity correctly. The consequence of the proper use of temporal wealth will be true wealth. True wealth is transcendent wealth that has value both now and in the next existence. If you value true wealth, your heart will be right before the Lord. Then you will be secure and you will live in faith. And in this life, supernatural events will happen as the Lord gives you grace to serve his purpose. And temporal wealth will simply be a tool to facilitate the the accumulation and the spread of true wealth, the currency of the New Testament ecclesia. May we have grace to learn, to live in the currency of the ecclesia, and to extend true wealth to those we've been called to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.